3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Our breakfast. Oh, Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to 8.30am. Well, uh, apparently our cool little uh, DJ mix bit at the end of our Thursday breakfast intro isn't playing. Um, but good morning. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.02 in the morning. Um, good morning, Inez. Good morning. How are you going? I am good. I am very awake, sipping on my cheap McDonald's coffee, having a good time. Look, uh, I think uh, whatever coffee you can get into before uh, starting the show is is good coffee, really. 100%. Um, I recently, you know, I'm trying to do things that are better for my health, which is very exciting. Uh, but I just want to be, <laughs> I want to be a healthy person and still enjoy my life. Yeah. Yeah. I, isn't, isn't that the goal? Being a healthy person and <laughs> still enjoying your, wait, that, that makes it, that makes it sound like being a healthy person is mutually exclusive with enjoying your life yep. unless you try really hard. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this is why I'm such a big fan of incidental exercise. You will not catch me in a gym, but I will ride my bike. So. Yes. Um, yeah, but we have a big show on today, and it starts off with a bit of heavy content. So, um, listeners, just be prepared for that. Um, Inez, do you want to jump in? Absolutely. So first we'll be joined by Dr. Hona Guha, who is a clinical and forensic psychologist, who will join us to speak about her debut book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. In Reclaim, through a series of case studies and expert analysis, Dr. Guha explores complex traumas, how survivors can recover and heal, and the nature of those who perpetrate violence. She provides a unique perspective of someone who has worked with people who perpetrate harm, those who have been impacted or survived harm, and her personal lived experience. By emphasizing compassion above all, she calls for us to become a better informed about perpetual cycles of harm and the needs of victims, survivors, so we can reclaim a safer, healthier society for every, but everybody. Sorry. And if this discussion obviously doesn't feel um, like safe to listen to at the moment, you can always come back at the end and also call Beyond Blue and Lifeline, but we can tell you more about that later. Yeah, thanks, Inez. And yeah, this is going to be followed up by another interview that um, you know, does include some challenging content. So last week, we were hoping to catch up with Cherie Lowe, Executive Director of the Bullet Dern Dern Center for Excellence in Aboriginal Social and Emotional Wellbeing at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization, or VACHO. Um, unfortunately, we weren't able to catch up last week, but she is joining us this week to speak about some of the devastating findings that were reported in the Victorian Coroner's Court's recently released report, Suicides of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People in Victoria 2018 to 2022. And this report highlights the impacts of a systemic failure to center Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's social and emotional well-being, which the Ballot Dern Center has recently been resourced to begin addressing through the development of an Aboriginal-led suicide response strategy. So, um, yeah, we're going to be uh, talking about 
Yeah, some 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 heavy uh, content, but I think uh, really important to to discuss this and to also look at um, strategies to bring in best practice and Aboriginal-led excellence in this space. Um, because you know, while this um, this is a real tragedy, the the rates of of suicide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Victoria. Um, Cherie is going to be telling us as well about what the Bullet Durndurn Centre is going to be doing to develop a strategy that hopefully mitigates against this, while also centering um, the lived expertise of people who have experience of suicide. And so uh, we will also be including some support lines uh, that you can call if you feel uncomfortable at any time before, during or after the interview. Um, and we really encourage you to get in contact, um, you know, please, if you need to speak with someone. And then to lighten up the end part of the show, um, we're going to be talking to Cassandra Connolly, who is from Bringbank Council, and she looks after the Bringbank Writers and Readers Festival, and this is a yearly event that celebrates and encourages a love for reading, storytelling, creativity, diversity, and learning. So this year features a very exciting lineup, um, including Auntie Faye Muir, Famindakor, Andre Dow, and more, and you can attend the festival from Thursday the 16th to Saturday the 25th of March in the Bringbank area of Nam, and you can check out more of the program um, by visiting bringbacklibraries.vic.gov.au forward slash writers festival. Awesome. And finally, uh, you know, if you're feeling uh, like you need to get activated about something, you want to get involved in some campaigning, we're going to be joined by Emma Bacon, who's the executive director of Sweltering Cities. And Emma's joining us to talk about the need for heatwave safe homes for renters in light of the ongoing climate crisis and the clear power imbalance between renters and landlords that leaves tenants vulnerable to heat stress. And Sweltering Cities is going to be holding a campaign strategy meeting to win heatwave safe rental homes in Melbourne on the 14th of March from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. online. So you can find out more at the Sweltering City site, which we'll have a link to in our show notes. But Emma's going to be telling us about how to get involved as well. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. We are going to listen to Carry Me Home. And as, who's that by? Kokoroko. Kokoroko's Carry Me Home. Take it away.
That was Carry Me Home by Coco Roco. Um, and they're also playing a gig tomorrow if anybody's interested. Yes, um, a beautiful little track to bring us into the show. So now these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 9th of March. Um, so just to begin, a warning to First Nations listeners that this headline does contain details that may be distressing. Data released this week shows that a number of closing the gap targets are progressing extremely slowly and some are actually going backwards. Productivity Commission data shows encouraging improvement in employment and land rights, but key areas such as education and reducing suicide rates are not progressing. Some areas such as incarceration rates of First Nations people and the number of children in out-of-home care are worsening. Advocates and communities continue to call for the government to transfer authority to First Nations-controlled organizations, saying evidence shows this is when efforts progress. Advocates also continue to point to colonization and systemic racism at the root of the gaps between First Nations and non-First Nations people in so-called Australia. In other news this week, more than 100 victims of the flawed fast-track refugee assessment process are maintaining a protest at the Parliament House in Canberra this week. Following the federal government's announcement in February for people on temporary protection visas, more than 12,000 refugees and people seeking asylum under the fast-track system are still in limbo. A spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition said, quote, For 10 years and longer, they've been in limbo. They work, they pay taxes, they have families, but they've been left on insecure bridging visas. The protesters are calling for urgent action to redress the injustice of offshore detention and the fast-track system. Uh, Also in headlines, and with an additional warning again to First Nations listeners, that this headline contains details that may be distressing. The family of a First Nations man attacked by Victoria Police in 2016 are still seeking the establishment of an independent complaints committee to change the way complaints against officers are handled. Gunachamara man Tommy Lovett was assaulted by Victoria Police when he was 18 years old, arrested for a crime he did not commit and left traumatised and seriously injured. His family made an initial complaint for excessive force by the police, but withdrew it when they realised the assigned investigators worked at the same police station as the officers involved. A hearing held by the Uruk Justice Commission was told that conflicts of interest often arise in the current system, where in some instances cases against police are investigated by fellow officers. And finally, in news headlines this week, an announcement that the North Richmond Medically Supervised Injecting Room will become permanent has been welcomed by community and health workers this week. At the centre, users can safely inject drugs and access other services such as mental health support, drug testing, sexual health, wound care and blood testing. Advocates are also calling in the Victorian government to lock in a second injecting service in the face of rising drug harms in Melbourne city centre. We doubled the number of overdoses in the past four months compared to this time last year. A report reviewing the safe injecting room city location is due mid-year. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 9th of March, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. We're now going to go to another track. This one is My Limits by Huntley.
listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was My Limits by Huntley, a really beautiful track. Um, that's got me feeling really calm and really just in a very gentle mood. But I think we might switch it up a bit with our next track. So we're going to head now to one by Maisha. Um, this is one of my favorites, so I keep coming back to it, but this is Damaged. Damaged by Maisha. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We're going to head to another track now before our first interview. This one is Ride or Die by Sydney Youngins and a Girl. Oh. 
They know what days I'll be getting into trouble. And all of my haters, they want to pop me like a bubble. But ever since young, I was told to never fold. So I expected to hate. And I was always down to rumble. Got a baddie right beside me, guarantee she always down when it's on. She rolled off for me and crazy like with Bonnie and Claude. No trouble steaming on his six, but like she does six. She got that pretty face, but like I said, she down when it's on. We stay in contact, run the shoes like two pack. Making money, Cardi B and Tony wants to two stacks. They call me Rico, cover my name, be on a dealer. Out here making beer to catch up in that beam again in kilos. So her name is Rico, call me from the inner of West. So dig a digger and a dick in your chest. Huh? So be aware, cause I'm running through the back streets. Coppers on my ops, looking right, I never lack. Chief running shotgun with my thoughts in the back. Sleep chilling with the fat heat, cause we never lack on these streets. So. I'm a ride or die girl, out of my I just seen three dragons slap the cash to fuck his feelings. But sometimes we need to know what it's been either. You see, they call me Tito, rolling with the dragon. Gotta keep the medias up to date with all the fashion. Trust that. Sydney City filled with rebels and heretics. My city filled with rebels in the ghetto with terrorists. Just imagine rolling in the cash and putting your family and your missus in the mansion. But it's fantastic. Switching that rubber band elastic. Chilling with your girl banging the classics. She loves towards the game And even when I push She has the nerve to call my name She knows to push the safety down Before she pulls it up to aim And when I see it's hard in public Cause they all just want the same I got my right hand on the photo And the other on the zipper Went from face to face Cause now we're talking through and I'm yelling get down on the floor Strong not to pull the trigger I have a rod of dog killing When I slide a sliding goober I know the girls are down the ride But hard it down to take a bullet Like when the strap is down To hand it down so she can pull it I know the girls are down the ride But hard it down to take a bullet Like when the strap is down To hand it down so she can pull it I'm a ride or die girl And that was Ride or Die by Sydney Youngins and a Girl. And now we'll be joined by Dr. Ahuna Goa, who is a clinical and forensic psychologist. He joins us to speak about her debut book, Reclaim. In Reclaim, through a series of case studies and expert analysis, Dr. Guha ex- explores complex traumas, how survivors can recover and heal, and the nature of those who abuse. She provides a unique perspective as someone who has worked with people that perpetrate harm, those who are impacted by it, survive it, and her personal lived experience. By emphasizing compassion above all, she calls for us to become better informed about cycles of harm and the needs of victim survivors so we can reclaim a safer, healthier society for everyone. Yep, and if uh, today's discussion doesn't feel safe for you to listen to at the moment, feel free to come back in about 15 minutes. And if you need someone to talk to, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 13 and we'll repeat that at the end as well. 
Thanks so much for joining us here today, Ohana. Thanks so much for having me, Inez. Great to be here. Yeah, well, we're really excited to have you on. I wanted to start off by asking, you know, why you wanted to write Reclaim and also why why now? Yeah, look, well, the book technically started the, the entire process about March 2021 was, was the first time I started working on it. And that was when Brittany Higgins and Grace Payne had just burst onto the scene with you know, some of these awful stories about things which, which had happened to them. And I heard the way the media were talking about trauma, but also about those who perpetrate harm felt like there were lots of myths in the space, and certainly as a forensic psychologist, I see lots of myths about about why people harm other people in very simplistic explanations. Um, It felt like there was a big gap in the field. We talk a lot about trauma, but it didn't feel like people were talking about complex trauma in quite the right way. And so I hope that my book would really address those, those gaps and be a good solid resource for survivors and also people who care for other people who have trauma, and that's Yeah, it's definitely very important to clearly define what it is. And I think there is still some disagreement on to what even constitutes a traumatic event. And in particular, as you said, what complex trauma is. And I think for myself as a social worker, I know that often the events that actually surround the trauma, how you're treated by systems, how the people around you treat you and, you know, um, everybody involved in it, that can be re-traumatizing in itself. So, you know, when we speak about complex trauma, how how would you define it? Yeah, look, I don't think that there's, that there's any specific cutoff point where I can say that this event's traumatic and this event isn't. Mm-hmm. When we when we speak about uh, you know complex trauma, we typically mean things that things that happen repeatedly. So we are talking about multiple cumulative, often often chronic, difficult or you know traumatic events, things that do tend to overwhelm our normal coping resources. Sometimes complex trauma is not just the presence of traumatic events, but it's also the absence of things that we should have. So if you think about things like like emotional neglect, which as a social worker, you've probably worked with people who have experienced that, that can also be traumatic in nature. So I think it's really important to be looking for the presence of difficult experiences, things which add up over time, but, but also the absence of good, solid, nurturing, safe relationships and care especially in childhood. And I think what's um, what's nice in this book, well, not nice in particular, but I guess a, a deeply moving and important part of the book is, you know, as you mentioned, the public discourse that is surrounding, like, the socially acceptable and the paddleable symptoms of trauma. And I think, you know, in essence, the myth of what the perfect victim is supposed to look like and what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And many survivors you know, that also respond to trauma in, you know, quote-unquote socially unacceptable ways are often stuck in punitive systems, you know, child protection, mental health settings, corrections. And would you mind speaking to this some more and, you know, what are the real dire consequences of not holding all survivors in mind? Yeah, look, I think it. I think this, this, this myth of the perfect victim, as you've um, very aptly described, is just very problematic because I think it gives us a very narrow view of what trauma is. It effectively keeps a lot of people trapped and ensures that systems, but also they themselves might not be thinking about trauma as at least partially contributing to some of their 
difficulties means that people can't access care because they might be labelled as perpetrators or, or, or offenders, and so we don't see them as being worthy of care, possibly, which means that they can't change long, long-standing behavioural patterns and cycles. It often means that people are re-traumatised because we act punitively and we don't we don't respond with compassion to this to this person who may have done something difficult and maybe caught up in um, very very harsh you know situation, but they're still fundamentally very hurt. Yes, I think it just it just means we don't see what needs to be seen. We we act in ways that are really really harsh sometimes and very punitive. Yeah, absolutely. And understanding how to break down those cycles can be a you know a, a long-standing process and the the I think the myth of the you know the perfect victim is oftentimes we it is trying to decide which group as you've said is worthy or not of protection and we know that often the groups that fall outside of you know the socially dominant groups yeah. are typically the ones that get the brunt of that um, minority groups, exactly uh, yeah absolutely and I think um you know going back to um, another point of you know what like the good versus the bad, which I think sometimes is is very easy to say like this is someone that's perpetrated harm or this is someone who's a victim of it, but um you know similar to yourself, I have also worked with people that you know have survived violence and also people yeah. who have perpetrated it, yeah. and what sticks out the most is that these experiences are not like two opposing sides of good or bad. Often people have been hurt themselves. They've been routinely failed by systems and they experience an almost, um, like an almost chronic sense of disconnection. I guess how do you also bring that compassion into your clinical and your forensic work? I think firstly just seeing what you've, what you've so, so aptly described there that this is about those broader cycles of disconnection and I think as I talk about in the the introduction to my book that sometimes people harm but they were first harmed and I think because of my work I one of the key things I try to do is try to understand a person's life which has really led them to this point and then you hear most often I'd say for about 99% of my forensic clients the really really harsh and difficult things which have happened to them first you start to understand why maybe their personality and their functioning has changed in a way which is which has eventually made them hurt other people and that's and that's not to excuse what they've done but it's really to try to explain it so that we can start to manage and 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 treat it so that they don't keep hurting other people. So I think essentially understanding why and bringing a level of curiosity is is what helps me be you know, compassionate. The other thing is I work on compassion very actively. It's 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 a practice for me. So just things like loving kindness meditation, trying to work on bringing openness and curiosity, all of these things are things that I that I have to work on daily because they are essential competencies for my work. Um, I wasn't born being being more kind of compassionate than than the average person. I think it's a skill that I've built over time. Yeah, I think that's very important to know that. Yeah, it is a skill that you do have yeah. to definitely work for it. And I think the oftentimes the easier option is you know to to think that the the best thing would be just to you know throw somebody in in jail and you know throw away the key and then the harm out of society is completely eradicated and we know that that's not how that works at all um and yeah absolutely not and understanding why people harm and how to 
as you said, like understand and support them um, and to to really see them as human beings, um, even on days where sometimes that can be challenging. And it's definitely not yeah. to definitely not to excuse anything that someone has done. But um, to, to, yeah, as you said, like build a healthier, happier society. I- question that we can lock our way up out of harm is is essentially very problematic because where do we start to be to be to be lock up ten year olds as we as we do at times um, do we yeah do we do we put everyone into prison do we give them all life sentences and throw away the key because that that's not how it how it works and that that's not how it should work. So essentially, when we're just locking people up without thinking about treatment and management, we are putting them away for a short sentence. They're going to come out back probably re traumatized by by having been in prison with all of these difficulties more entrenched. One hundred percent. Screens for locking people up. That's that that that's actually contributing to the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And that you know, it's also recognizing that all of us are capable of harming <laughs> and Absolutely. oftentimes we have also done similar things and we you know have been very close to <laughs> um being in in that situation and for a multitude of reasons maybe it didn't happen but i, I think yeah. the degree of separation is much closer than people like to Absolutely. like to think Agreed. Agreed. um and also and only if you feel comfortable sharing this um you know, as you've spoken in the book that, you know, you're a survivor of, you know, and lived experience of complex trauma. And I can imagine that, you know, really writing this book could have brought up a range of emotions. And if you, yeah, yeah only if you feel comfortable, would you mind sharing what that process was like? Was it challenging or cathartic? In terms of actually writing the book, I found it really, and I'm going to use a word that I don't like because it's being, being abused a lot at the moment, but quite healing. And I think a lot of that was because I had a really excellent publisher who was who was very careful to caveat that I only share as much about my own trauma as I felt comfortable. And I didn't actually share a lot, just that I have a history and it felt important for me to share that because I really want to start to break down the narrative that trauma only happens to certain types of people. So being able to maintain a level of privacy but being able to take, to, to discharge my story was, was, was really, really helpful. I also found the process quite strangely moving and beautiful to pull things together, to talk about what happened to me, to talk about what can happen to other people. It felt like the final step of my journey, and obviously as I've spoken about my own journeys involved a lot of my own therapy. Um, but I think being protected and scaffolded through the process was, was also very healing because as most complex trauma survivors have been placed in roles as a young child that I couldn't fulfill because I just didn't have the developmental capacity to do it. And I was expected to caretake for people. So being with this really excellent publisher who gave me agency and control but 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 also kept away certain things like like sales figures because I don't I don't have any control over that and I don't I don't need to worry about that. Freed me up to just be who I was. So a strange, a strange process, but it's, but it's actually been really, really powerful to me. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I can imagine that would be really very powerful and quite healing. And, uh, you know, very, very briefly, just for the last question, um, you know, we spent some time talking about harmful or, you know, harmful dynamics or, um, you know, situations that cause someone to perpetuate harm. Um can we talk about what, very, very briefly, what like a good and safe relationship is? 
So shared shared power, understanding of boundaries, understanding that each person is entitled to privacy, their own money, space, time, and friends. Clear clear assertive communication, respect for each other, and no no use of coercion or any form of psychological or physical violence. I would say that these are the key things. Amazing, thank you so much. Um, hugely important to remember and like think about. Um, yeah, the kind of the the kind of relational dynamics that we want to try to create and where can we buy your book and support you <laughs> thanks for that question absolutely everywhere i think i think if you look for reclaim understanding complex trauma um it's it's up on amazon on booktopia through the scribe website readings all of your local indies and it's always good to try and support your local indie Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Guha. We will um, definitely keep an eye out and share it wide <laughs> for everyone oh, to buy. But thank you so much for coming on today. It was a really insightful Pleasure. interview. Thank you. Yep. We've just heard from Dr. Ahuna Goa, who is a clinical and forensic psychologist, who joins us to, t- to talk about her debut book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. And she provides a unique perspective as someone who has worked with people that perpetrate harm, those who have survived harm, and her personal lived experience. And we also spoke about how we can, you know, understand the needs of victim survivors, understand cycles of harm, and how we can reclaim a safer, healthier society for everyone. Now, if something in this discussion was distressing, you can call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. That's 1300 224 636. Or Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. 24-7 Lady Blue, feel the waves in my hair, so calm and cool. Perfect, no despair. I wish I could swim here forever, Miss Lady Blue. Me and you, run, run down. Calling me
Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 747 in the morning, and that was Lady Blue by Emily Wuramara. And we're now joined by Cherie Lowe, who's the executive director of the Ballot Durndurn Center for Excellence in Aboriginal Social and Emotional Wellbeing at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization, or VACHO. And Cherie is joining us to speak about the devastating findings reported in the Victorian Coroner's Court's recently released report, Suicides of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People in Victoria, 2018 to 2022. And this report highlights the impacts of a systemic failure to center Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's social and emotional well-being, which the Bullet Durndurn Center has recently been resourced to begin addressing through the development of an Aboriginal-led suicide response strategy. Cherie is a Jaburong and Gunajamara woman with strong connection to southwest Victoria, and she's lived most of her life on Wadawurrung country in Ballarat. She's been advocating within the Aboriginal community in Victoria for over 20 years and previously worked as a management consultant at PwC on projects related to organizational transformation through an Aboriginal lens and culturally safe program design. Now, before we begin this interview, just a content warning, this interview will focus on the issue of suicide, which may be distressing to some listeners. If you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and you need to speak to someone, please call Yarn and Safe and Strong on 1-800-959-563 or 13-YARN. That's 133216. And non-Indigenous listeners may also wish to call Beyond Blue on 1-300-224-636 or Lifeline on 131114. Cherie, good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Priya. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate you making the time. And maybe before we jump into it, I want to begin by also acknowledging and honoring all of the families and communities who have experienced the devastating loss of a loved one to suicide, um, because it's their stories uh, that we'll be honoring and trying to center uh, in in this discussion. So um, could we begin by talking about the background to these devastating findings in the Victorian Coroner's Court's report to situate the mental health experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within this broader context of historical, political and the social determinants of health and well-being? And can you speak to the importance of a holistic and systemic approach when discussing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's mental health? Yeah, sure. So starting with a little bit of background around the Coroner's Court report, um, so recently established within the coroner's court um, over several years, I think it's probably three or four years now, was the establishment of the Aboriginal Engagement Unit, or the Koori Engagement Unit, which is quite unique um, in Victoria. That team, what that team's been able to do is to be able to create change within the, within the coroner's court in how they do business and how they respond to... Um, 
specifically um, Aboriginal um, pastings, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander pastings. So it's quite unique to have have a, a, a body established within the coroner's court that's helping guiding that. And what has, what has come through that is the release of um, an annual report. Um, so this is the third year that it's been released um, that looks into the data that sits around and the contributing factors around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicide. So what is important about that is it brings light and it brings data to a to a um, a challenging community that we didn't have data or have foresight within that um, before the establishment of the um, Aboriginal Engagement Unit. What that's been able to do for us is to be able to now have conversations because we do have the data to be able to advocate, to be able to look at um, the contributing factors and start to work around strategies to address that. What's really devastating for us is that um, last year's report um, highlighted a 75% increase in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander suicides um, in that year. And this year, although the numbers are slightly um, less than the year before, still really calls out the challenges from a, a, a holistic kind of systemic um, response that's still not meeting the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Mm. And I think that that's where we kind of see that intersect of um, understanding that um, from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspective that um, healthcare, um, whether it's primary healthcare or mental health or Aboriginal social and emotional wellbeing, um, it's important to look at it from a holistic um, point of view and um, for a number of reasons. One is because it, it matches our needs um, culturally um, and what we mean by holistic is that um, we understand and see that um, health and wellbeing needs are interconnected. Mm. And so particularly from a social and emotional wellbeing um, perspective, we work within a framework that um, highlights that interconnectedness, um, but also really acknowledging those um, determinants that you called out, Priya, so the historical, political and, and the social determinants. And it's really important to understand those because we don't operate in a, um, in a system that doesn't have competing um, factors that kind of influence people's experiences and outcomes. So when we talk about the historical um, determinants of health, that's really calling out the impact of colonisation and how that's impacted um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. It's um, the cultural displacement um, and the lasting intergenerational trauma from, from those um, you know, wider scale policies and, and those types of things have had a devastating and a long-lasting impact on community. The political side is very much around access to resources, land sovereignty and, and, and those types of things and, you know, how political conversations, one that we're having um, quite publicly now around um, a voice to parliament, mm. um, how that plays out on people's social and emotional well-being 
And then I think the social determinants of health people are quite familiar with. So when we talk about, you know, access to employment, um, education attainment, um, the impact of racism. So all of that going on um, in our environment kind of impacts how people access um, services, mm. um, but also how services are designed. And, and what we're finding at the moment is the disconnect of um, services or that fragmentation has a real impact of, um, on vulnerable people when they're accessing um, services. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, from what you have, uh, what you've just spoken about and the context that you've provided, it's clear that a holistic response is really what's required, something that is attentive to the multiple different pressures that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face uh, within a system of ongoing colonization where, um, you know, things that might not be necessarily intuitive within, um, I guess, a Western psychological framework, um, need to be attended to as, you know, pressures on people's social and emotional well-being as stressors that affect the way people navigate their everyday lives and, you know, feel, um, you know, that they are able to to cope and move through situations or, um, you know, even the, the day-to-day challenges that people experience are very differently inflected. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about the role of the Balit Dundurn Centre in promoting the social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Victoria, and in particular, the process underway to co-design an Aboriginal-led suicide response strategy that you've recently been resourced for. Yeah, sure. So um, take us back a little bit. That in the, um, As we know, there's been a royal commission into the mental health um, system in Victoria, um, in the interim report that was handed down, um, there were some specific um, recommendations which um, highlighted the importance of Aboriginal social and emotional well-being, um, particularly in the in the sector, so expanding the workforce um, and and not, and establishing the centre of excellence to be able to bring together that fragmentation of being able to embed and support the system into being able to understand Aboriginal social and emotional well-being better. Um, so we, um, from a VATCHO perspective, in, in the interim report of the Royal Commission, felt that um, there wasn't an, enough understanding of Aboriginal social and emotional well-being. Um, so we undertook a process... Um, to develop the ballot and report, um, and that entailed having a range of different um, conversations with a, a broad scope of people with lived and living experience, but also um, services within the sector as well. And so we highlighted five solutions and, and sent that back into in response to the interim report, and then the final report um, captured another range of recommendations which highlighted the importance of being able to um, establish spaces for healing and um, also to focus specifically on infant and children's um, social and emotional well-being. So we've got a quite a specific mandate from our funding from the um, department that is centred around those recommendations. That's who's been delivering services around um, 
well, not so much services because we're not service delivery, but we've been providing support to the sector um, around Aboriginal social and emotional wellbeing long before the Royal Commission. But the Royal Commission has invested in and been able to um, create the opportunity of highlighting the importance of um, for First Nations people that the service current service system doesn't meet their needs. And so the centre is all about that. The centre mm. is about being able to advocate. Um, it's also about to work with mainstream services to be able to embed Aboriginal social and emotional wellbeing. It's about being able to work alongside mainstream to be able to um, work through cultural safety and what that looks like, because we know that that's a significant barrier of access to services, people um, not feeling culturally safe. Um, And also then just more broadly supporting the sector, the Aboriginal sector, our workforce to ensure that they've got the skills um, and and support to be working in the the social and emotional wellbeing space. Mm. So the centre is a critical part of trying to create that connection point um, and being able to systemically kind of advocate for the changes that need to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it really looks like it'll be a site for the development of of, of best practice in this space and and something that is really, um, you know, quite significant and and really needed. Um, So... Before we before we wrap up, I was wondering if any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening have lived or living experience uh, of suicide or a concern for their loved ones. Do you have any advice on where to go for resources and support? Yeah, I think the uh, I think the important part is um, to tap into your local services. That could be your local Aboriginal services, so our Aboriginal Community Control Health organisations. <laughs> which are based um, in, you know, there's 32 in the state, so they're based in all kind of major um, settings um, and then smaller towns as well. So that's a great resource to be able to get a a culturally responsive support. Um, I think being able to have the conversation and, and it's a really sensitive kind of taboo topic across all communities, not just Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, people but having having and starting conversations about this is really important. Um, removing the stigma around this is really important. Mm. Um, and I think that you mentioned the the the, um, the hotlines or the um, you know the resources at the start of um, a call and I think that that's really important if people are um, feeling in that way they may not have a family support or um, broader community support or feel that they don't have that. Um, So being able to call those lines um, is also really important. Um, There's some... um, So I think that that's the the starting point of those resources. Mm -hmm. The point about um, an Aboriginal-specific strategy towards suicide and suicide prevention um, means that there will be resources that as fit for purpose and, and developed in the near future, but um, at the moment there is um, very few on the ground. Yeah, uh, but I think um, that you know that advice to to go to community services and to start making those connections and to also just call those lines when people when people need. And I'll I'll repeat those after after we wrap up is is so important. Um, you know there are supports out there. Um, you know 
community cares about you and you know people are are there to talk to if you do need to to speak about these these really difficult circumstances so Cherie thank you so much for speaking with us today I really appreciate you making the time thank you and that was Cherie Lowe, who's the executive director of the Ballot Derndern Center for Excellence in Aboriginal Social and Emotional Wellbeing at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organization, or VACHO. And she joined us to speak about the devastating findings reported in the Victorian Coroner's Court recently released report, Suicides of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People in Victoria 2018 to 2022, and also about the Ballot Derndern Center's resourcing to address uh, this issue through the development of an Aboriginal-led suicide response strategy and once again this interview did focus on the issue of suicide which may be distressing to some listeners and if you're aboriginal or Torres Strait islander and need to speak to someone please call yarn and safe and strong on 1-800-959-563 or 13yarn that's 133216 and non-indigenous listeners may also wish to call beyond blue on 1-300-224-636 or lifeline on 131114 you're listening to thursday morning breakfast on 3cr 855 am and now we are going to go to a quick track called Sorted Out by the Betty Rays. So that was sorted out by the Betty Rays. And now we'll be joined by Cassandra Connolly from the Brimbank Council, who looks after the Brimbank Writers and Readers Festival. And the festival is a yearly event that celebrates and encourages a love for reading, storytelling, creativity, diversity and learning. And the festival is coming up on Thursday the 16th to the Saturday 25th of March in the Brimbank area of Nam. And you can check out the program at the brimbacklibraries.vic.gov.au forward slash writers festival. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Cass. Well, yeah, well, I just wanted to start off with the interview, um, sorry, not the interview, <laughs> sorry. 
<laughs> the festival um, and how actually it got started because I know it's been a yearly event, but what have, what have been the origins of it? Yeah, so this is the 18th year of the festival this year and um, my understanding is, I haven't been around for those 18 years, but my understanding is the council and the community both really wanted to highlight storytelling of our community. We have a really diverse community in Brimbank, um, one of the most diverse in the country. And um, it was just a really good way of sharing and instilling a love of sharing stories, as well as promoting literacy and learning. Absolutely. And I think even... um you know, I remember being a little young in myself and <laughs> always hanging out in the library and a lot of those community events really do feel like, you know, a little home away from home. And yeah, I think events like these where the community can come together are, are so incredibly important. And, you know, also looking through the program guide for this year, there really does seem to be something for everyone. Could you walk us through some of the events and experiences that we can expect by attending? do really try, and thanks for mentioning that, we really do try to highlight and make sure that there is something for everybody. This year we've got a huge lineup over 10 days, um, starting from things for little people. We've got an Auslan water safety story time at the Brimbank Aquatic and Wellness Centre and a Young People's First Nations Language Workshop with Annie Faye Muir happening down in Deer Park. Uh, so there's some events for young people. Um, families can come along. Um, everything's free to attend. For um, for the adults, we've got a huge range of workshops, panels, author talks. Um, some really great things that are coming up is we're actually screening Clean, uh, which is a documentary about Sandra Pankhurst, who's a Melbourne identity, or should I say was. We, we lost Sandra uh, a couple of years ago now, but um, she was a forensic trauma cleaner and used to be a resident of Sunshine. So we're screening... Um, the Clean documentary, and we've got Lachlan McLeod that also coming in uh, to do a director's talk as well. Um, another great thing that um, I should obviously highlight is our opening night. We have a panel of amazing First Nations women, including Anifei Muir, our local legend, uh, Yorta Yorta woman, uh, Auntie Joyce Cooper, and, um, uh, and writer uh, Celeste Little. They're coming in to talk about their their life and experience and obviously their journey as storytellers as well. It sounds so amazing and knowing that, you know, the events are free, there's so much to see and that it's really representative of the community that you're serving. And I guess when you were also like, you know, helping putting together the event alongside I'm sure many, many other people, what were some of the like the values or the key messages you were thinking of conveying to the bring back community through the event yeah i think the main um the main focus of this event has always about sharing storytelling and create and it's sharing stories and for people to be able to have a, sh a safe space to share their stories uh, we have a lot of talented um, up-and-coming writers and authors and creatives in Brimbank, and this is really a platform for them to be able to share their work. Um, I think, uh, you know, being being the community that we are, um, and having uh, you know having that representation across different um, age cultures, um, you know, gender diversity. Uh, and be able to share that openly and in a safe space mm -hmm. with the community is really, really important. And it's something that we 
you know, we we try to get out there and our community really love. And I think the wider community really love that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can imagine, um, you know, people from surrounding councils and, you know, uh, local areas definitely would want to come by. And, you know, I am personally like <laughs> in in a completely different area and I would definitely travel all the way out to Sunshine and <laughs> Deer Park to attend some of these because they're pretty, they're pretty amazing. Um, I guess also how do you, have you encountered any like challenges for putting up an event like of this scale? Yeah. Um, well, obviously uh, we are like our municipality is quite a huge space area wise so one of the one of the big things is obviously putting on an event over ten days is really making sure that we're featuring events in key areas so that we can highlight our municipality as mm-hmm. well and they're really awesome venues and libraries and neighborhood houses and community spaces and businesses that we have. So, um, you know, but with our team and we've got fantastic sponsors like Victoria University, being able to bring everyone together, um, we're able to overcome challenges pretty easy. You know, well, uh, 10 heads are better than one and we're really lucky to have a really great team that, that are working on the event. Absolutely. And I think it's a really, you know, as you mentioned, a really amazing way to showcase the diversity of the council, but also, yeah, in the businesses and the community centres and in the buildings. I think that's so, yeah, it's, it's so wonderful. It's, it's a good way to um, keep the community connected too. And I wanted to ask maybe personally, um, are there any events that like you are really excited for, for yourself either to attend or that were like really fun to put together? Oh, this is a big question because <laughs> I get excited by all of them. I can always think of somebody that I want to ring up and say, hey, do you want to come to this? Um, <laughs> so, you know, but I think some of the main ones for me this year is um, the Soul Lounge Out West, which is a collective of slam artists, uh, spoken word poets who are putting we're going to put on an evening with them at the Sunshine Social located in West Sunshine it's a barbecue restaurant so you can grab your burger listen to some poetry and also get up there's going to be an open mic component to that night as well um, another awesome one is uh, we're having a Persian cooking um, in conversation and then a cooking demo so we have a local um, a local restaurant owner who um, came here as a refugee from Iran. His name is um, Ahmed um, Alayari, and he has written a book with travel writer Danny Valent um, called Salamati, celebrating Persian culture and culinary. And his food's amazing. Um, he's going to be doing an in conversation with Danny in our Sunshine Library, and then he's going to put on. He's going to do a cooking demo, and um, everybody's going to have a bit of food. So I think they're two events that I'm really, really keen on this year. But to be honest, um, I'm keen for everything. Absolutely, gosh, it all sounds so wholesome and so exciting, and. Um, I'm contemplating taking 10 days of leave so I can attend all of these events. <laughs> um, yeah. And also, how can we find out more and attend the festival? Yeah, the main thing to highlight is everybody is welcome. Uh, all events are held on Wurundjeri Country you know, and this in um, the city of Brimbank. And we uh, can find, you can find out by going to brimbanklibraries.vic.gov.au forward slash writers festival or you can Google Brimbank Writers and Readers Festival will come straight up. Um, you just need to register for events because some events are starting to 
um, book out and have wait lists, but there's still plenty of spaces at some events. You just need to register. Everything's free to attend. We're only 10 minutes from the city and we're a really quick, um, we're, we're a really quick train trip um, from the city as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Cass. Uh, this is a really wholesome and wonderful interview and, you know, can't wait to hopefully attend some of these events, but hope you have a lovely day. You too. Hope to see you there. Take care. Bye. That was Cass Connolly from the Bring Back Council who looks after the Bring Back Readers and Writers Festival, uh, which is a yearly event that celebrates and encourages a love for reading and storytelling, creativity and diversity. And you can attend the festival from Thursday the 16th to Saturday the 25th of March in the Brimbank area of Nam, and check out the program at bringbacklibraries.vic.gov.au forward slash writers festival. Awesome. And we're going to head to another track now. This one is Change Has to Come by Moju. Can't you hear the bells signal the warning? Here comes the storm. Best we be gone. Out to the street where the legions are forming. I heard the call more than ever before. If we just scream on our screen, we will forget what it means. I am flesh, I am blood. So much deeper than that There are brothers and sisters Whose burdens Are stacked so it's breaking their backs If we just scream at our screen We will forget what it means I am flesh, I am blood I am down in the mud To protect all the things I believe in I believe in And 
we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And that was Change Has to Come by Moju. And now we are joined by Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities, the executive director of Sweltering Cities. And we're going to be talking about the campaign to win heat wave safe homes for renters and some of the issues around uh, heat stress that are experienced by renters in Victoria and how we might be able to fight back. So, Emma, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Um, so maybe we can start off by talking a bit about heat stress as an increasingly acute climate change driven issue that's being faced by households in Australia. So how have you and I guess the sweltering cities team more broadly seen this phenomenon develop over the past few years? And what's the significance of characterizing heat vulnerability as an environmental injustice with both health and social impacts? That's such a great question. Over the last few years of work on this, I think what I've seen is more attention and more concern onto extreme heat in our communities. And I think that's a shift in thinking from a few years ago when climate change was still something that was distant, like geographically in terms of time, you know, we're trying to reduce emissions in order to prevent a future occurrence. But I think we all understand now that climate change is happening and that what we are fighting to do is actually, you know, not like stop it continuing to exacerbate over time, um, until we have parts of our cities that are just dangerous to live in. Um, so I think we all understand that it's something that, you know, whether it's the fires, the floods, the storms or the heat, um, is something we can see in real time around us. And, you know, heat wave vulnerability is driven by structural inequalities. Like it's about what sort of house you live in. It's about your health. You know, it's about whether you have a disability. We know women are more impacted. We know that racism drives heat vulnerability. And so when we're looking at the solutions for it, we also have to tackle those structural inequalities. Mm. Otherwise, we're going to do things like just give a whole lot of people, you know, money to buy electric cars and, you know, wealthy people will live in luxurious green homes and people, you know, who don't have those resources will be most at risk. I think um, one of my clearest examples around that, you know, when it gets really hot, we often recommend that people go somewhere cool to stay safe, um, especially if their homes aren't safe, if it's too hot. And for a lot of people, the closest air-conditioned space is the local shopping centre. But, you know, firstly, everyone, I think, next time they go to a shopping centre, have a look at how many seats are actually there. Um, But secondly, who can hang out at a shopping centre for five or six hours? Not people with really young kids, not First Nations people or homeless people um, or young people might get kicked out by security. Um, So we need to make sure that when we're looking at tackling heat vulnerability, We're doing it through a lens of, you know, what are the structural inequalities that make people vulnerable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, having that broader perspective is so important as well, because a a couple of weeks back, I I interviewed a researcher, Hannah Delabosca, on um, sort of the relative insulation that people have in terms of uh, being able to climate control their homes if they have, you know, certain levels of financial access, if they're living in particular areas um, and therefore don't have to... uh, experience the physical effects of heat stress in the same way. So uh, attending to environmental injustice and marginalization uh, in multiple different dimensions is really important. Now, Sweltering Cities has done pretty extensive consultation with Victorian renters living in dangerously hot homes, and I was hoping that you could take us through some of the key concerns that were raised in these discussions and perhaps how they also intersect with the well-established power imbalance between landlords and renters. Yeah, I think we have heard so many really shocking stories 
I think shocking to some and totally familiar to others. And what really strikes me when I'm, you know, and I'll, you know, give a couple of examples, but what really strikes me is that people are asking for simple things that would increase the value of the house. You know, they are improvements to the house and they are still being refused. Mm. You know, one of the first people I spoke to about this a couple of years ago, um, there's a woman called Jane who's a nurse living in an apartment in, in the Melbourne. They've got her and her girlfriend have big glass windows um, that face the sun, and so their bedroom and their living room get extremely hot. So the first summer, they put up alfoil and bubble wrap on the windows um, in order to block out the sun, which is pretty bleak to live inside, um, that sort of cave-like atmosphere. And in the summer after, they went to their landlord, they went to the real estate and said, we'd love to install better blinds. You know, there's some really light ones at the moment we have better blinds. They said, we refuse, but if you want to put some in yourself you've got to make sure that you remove them at the end of your tenancy and that there's no sign they were ever there. And so for her, she was like, well, this is a big expense, but I'm also basically saying I'm putting my bond at risk mm-hmm. because there's a huge chance that they're just going to say, you know, it's not the same. The other day I spoke to a woman called Alison who was in an extremely hot home in southwest Melbourne. And one of the things she asked for was if she could plant trees, like some little shrubs on one side of the house mm-hmm. in order to block the bricks from the sun. They said no, that she can't even do any landscaping. She goes and rides the train for five or six hours at a time on a hot day because that's the place she feels most comfortable. You know, I think that people should find that shocking. I was talking to another person who even offered to pay more for air conditioning and the landlord refused. They're just not interested in providing um, safe, livable homes in the heat, and that's because there's no rules to make them do so. Yeah, it's absolutely appalling. So uh, you just mentioned there's no rules to make them do so. So what is um, what is the sort of legislative environment that we're talking about in Victoria? Are there actually any potential, uh, you know, protections that renters can appeal to at the moment? Is this a question of an absence of relevant legislative protection or are problems at the level of enforceability or is this, you know, a combination of both? Well, you know, with renters, there's always the problem that you know, because people can be kicked out at the end of their tenancies, because people are very vulnerable, um, you know, even when there are good rules, um, it can often be hard to enforce or to get landlords to follow them, to get real estate agents to follow them. One of the fundamental things we're looking at is that in the Victorian rental minimum standards, you've got heating for winter to make sure people are okay during winter. But we don't have cooling in summer. We don't have the right to have a heatwave-safe home. And we know that summers are getting hotter. We know that the next few years, we're probably going to see the hottest summer of our lifetimes. These are going to be really long heat waves. are going to be long overnight, really high overnight temperatures. And so, you know, this is an environmental disaster. We know when and where it's going to happen. In the coming summer, our homes will be dangerous, and there are renters who will die in their homes unless they have these protections. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds really extreme, but I can 100% tell you that's true. Mm-hmm. There's two things that we can do. One, we can include heat in the minimum standards either in individual items, like, for example, with blinds that I mentioned earlier. At the moment, there's a provision for um, blinds that give privacy. We could also add something in there saying, you know, blinds that provide privacy and thermal regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could add it into items like that. Or you can actually have an item separately saying that people have to, people need to be able to live in a home um, with safe temperatures during extreme heat mm-hmm. um, so that the living spaces are fine. Um, and I think the other thing that needs to be done is Victoria has some cash incentives for things like aircon, solar, energy efficiency. We need to make sure those programs work for renters and landlords so that landlords aren't saying, oh, this is 
you know, it's going to cost me something, it's going to be too bothersome, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it. Those programs need to be revamped. Yeah. I mean, it, it really it really seems like um, there's an absence of such basic protections, and yet at mm-hmm. the moment we need to be talking about climate change adaptation. Um, you know, the federal government needs to be working on its responsibilities with mitigation, as, does, as do the state and territory governments. But at the level of adaptation, this is about making sure that people can survive the changes that are already happening. Um, so Sweltering Cities is going to be holding a campaign strategy meeting this month to map out how to push for heatwave-safe homes in Victoria. So what's the plan for this meeting, and how can listeners get involved? Yeah, so it's next Tuesday, 7.30pm, it's online. People can register, I'll give some information. Um, they can go to our website and look for the page saying, you know, the plan to win heatwave safe homes. But the reason we're having the meeting is because we have a lot of context in Victoria. We've been talking to people about this issue. Um, and we know that over the last summer, lots of people found it really unbearable. Um, in our experience, it can be quite hard to campaign on heat-related things in winter. Um, especially in Victoria where people get very cold as well. Um, and so what we're doing is we're getting people together who are interested in helping us plan and strategize this campaign. Um, and so that next summer we have a big group of people um, who can take action, whether we're targeting the housing minister, whether we're taking, you know, direct actions, whatever it is. We're working with allies like Rahu, who do really great work as Adventures and Housing Union. Um, so that's next Tuesday we're going to be... Um, getting people together, hearing some really important stories, identifying the problem and making a plan to win. And I think people will probably really enjoy it if they're interested in this issue, but we'd also love to hear from them anyway. Um, so if anyone is interested in telling a story, interested in getting involved or has more questions, um, they can email us at info at swelteringcities.org. With any of those questions, it's info at swelteringcities.org or have a look at our website. But, yeah, we're meeting 7.30 p.m. next Tuesday online. And I'll put up the link to register on all our social media. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And we'll have the link as well in our show notes. Um, Emma, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us um, to outline this really important issue, but also to let us know that something can be done about this and it involves all of us, you know, getting together and um, having, you know, making a collective push for heatwave safe, ho- safe homes for renters. So thank you. Thank you. And that was Emma Bacon, who is the executive director of Sweltering Cities, and she joined us to talk about the need for heatwave-safe homes for renters in light of the ongoing climate crisis and clear power imbalance between renters and landlords, which leaves tenants vulnerable to heat stress. Sweltering Cities is Australia's only national campaign and advocacy organization working specifically on issues related to extreme heat. And as Emma mentioned, they'll be holding a campaign strategy meeting to win heatwave safe rental homes in Melbourne next week on the 14th of March from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. And you can find more information at swelteringcities.org. But we'll also have specific links to the Action Network site where you can RSVP and find out um you know, some of the more specific details um, on that site in our show notes. Um, so that is just about all we have time for today on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Just as a quick recap, we started off by speaking with Dr. Ahona Guha, clinical and forensic psychologist, about her debut book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. We were then joined by Cherie Lowe, Executive Director of the Ballot Dern Centre for Excellence in Aboriginal Social and Emotional Wellbeing at the Victorian Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, or VACHO. 
And after that, we heard from Cassandra Connolly from the Brimbank Council um, about the Brimbank Writers and Readers Festival. And of course, finally, we were joined by Emma Bacon, Executive Director of Sweltering Cities. You've been listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks so much for your company, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello and welcome to Lost in Science for another week. My name is Claire, and it is very special episode of Lost in Science this week. It is our special episode for International Women's Day and I have with me a wonderful, excellent Catriona. Hello. Hello, Claire. It's lovely to be chatting with you. It's so good to have us both on Lost in Science, kicking Chris and Stu out of the studio and taking over all female voices for International Women's Day this year. Woo! So, Kat, how are you feeling about International Women's Day? I'm feeling pretty great. I think it's a great day to celebrate some of the amazing women scientists that have come before us in Australia. Yeah. Some of them, maybe you've heard their stories before and maybe some of them you haven't. So are you going to be sharing some of your favourite and, well, I don't want to say favourite, maybe some of the most inspirational female scientists with us today? Yeah, maybe some of the ones who people haven't heard of so much. It's probably... Yeah, so not necessarily my favourite, but like, you know, the kind of unrecognised heroes. The, the heroes who may have gone under the radar. Well, I think that's super important to bring to light stories of um, women in science that we don't necessarily hear through the year, especially at this time of year. Um, I have brought for us today, Kat, um, an interview with a scientist who I think you might know, Dr. Ashley Hood. She is a geologist, so obviously um, she rocks. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Sorry. Love it. Um, yeah, but she asks mm. questions like, how did life on Earth evolve and why? Um, like just the biggest, most philosophical questions um, and that you can sort of ask in science. Yeah, and, and literally like age-old questions. <laughs> yes, yes, age-old questions. And she does incredible work looking at rocks and sediments and these old, and I'm not talking just like a little bit old, but like, <laughs> yeah, like you say, age-old rocks to determine exactly how life has evolved. So stick around for Ashley. Um, She is a literal force of nature. Yeah, I feel like we're going to be introducing our listeners to quite a few forces of nature in science for this International Women's Day episode. So on with the show. So, for International Women's Day, I thought I'd share with you some stories of some incredible people who I just think are very inspirational because they're amazing women in science. And um, 
I think it's probably a biased list <laughs> in that it's very like microbiology, immunology focused. Yeah. Yeah. That's not to say that there aren't incredible women scientists who have like been in other fields too. <laughs> and for all our listeners, um, you are an immunologist, right? So they're, I am. They're, okay. Okay. Heavy bias. <laughs> Um, so the first person I wanted to talk about is Lucy Alford, mm-hmm. um, and she was born in 1915 and attended the University of Melbourne. Um, and essentially, she was she was very qualified. Like she'd done a stint at um, CSIRO, she'd worked in a pathology lab at a hospital in Perth, and she'd done all these great things. And then in 1941, the Melbourne Metropolitan Board of Water which is essentially the body in charge of the entire Melbourne sewage system, realised, ah, something's corroding these concrete sewage pipes. We need to do something. (laughs) Oh, right. Was it causing sewage to go everywhere? Is that... (laughs) Yeah, and just like... Something foul like that? Yeah. um, Not the best. (laughs) Gross. Um, Plus things leaking out. Yeah. 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 Just not ideal. And so essentially the home base was kind of the the pumping station, which is at ScienceWorks now. (laughs) So very exciting. But essentially they were like, okay, so something's corroding the pipes. It's probably bacteria. So we need to find someone who's qualified in microbiology. Um, Oh, no, it's 1941. All the young men are at war. (laughs) So... After two rounds of call-outs, she was the only qualified applicant. And like like I said, she was more than qualified. Yeah. Um, yep. And so they're like, oh, okay, we'll take you on temporarily. Mm-hmm. And she ended up staying with them for 20 years. Oh, wow. So like they didn't even put her on the books until five years later. They were like, oh, no, it's only temporary. <laughs> um, but no, she, she truly made her mark there. So essentially her role was to work out what is the bacteria that's corroding these pipes. And um, she worked with another scientist and together they worked out that it was um, a particular type of bacteria called thiobacillus. And what they do is they take, you know, the like kind of um, rotten egg gas that you can associate with sewage sometimes. Yeah, so they were taking up that gas and converting it into, which is um, sulfur gas. And they were converting it into sulfuric acid. And acid mm. is corrosive. So that's uh-huh. what was corroding the pipes. So she figured um, this out. She and and her, her partner, yeah. Mm. So the, the two of them together. And they even identified a new thiobacillus species, which is kind of cool. Like, so Melbourne sewage system had like this new undiscovered wow. thiobacillus species, um, which is pretty cool. And so how did they solve the problem? A, a big solution, which is actually still used today um, in, in sewage systems, um, you just aerate it. Because oh. if you don't let the gas accumulate, mm. it isn't going to be turned into as much acid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but also another really cool thing that she did was she kind of moved into water quality monitoring and also looking at um, if infections came up, where did they come from? Right. So um, there was an outbreak of typhoid. I mean, there were lots of typhoid outbreaks even before Melbourne sewage system was in place. But this particular outbreak came from Moorabbin and people were like, oh, where's it coming from? Is it is it a problem with the pumping station and like some night soil? Is, it, is there like contamination? She figured out 
again, with, with a team, but like they figured out that no, it came from the wife of a dairy farmer and people just don't drink that milk for three days. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, Yeah. So an absolutely incredible woman who, you know, wasn't even nearly wasn't going to be given a chance to work there, um, but ended up working there until she retired. Um, So, yeah, absolutely incredible. Uh, Another person that I wanted to talk about is Dora Lush, who was born five years earlier, so 1910. um, And... Maybe if you haven't heard of Dora Lush, you've probably heard of her close collaborator, McFarlane Burnett. Ah, yes. Yeah. So she researched infectious diseases like the flu um, and myxomatosis, actually, and was involved in the early developments of myxomatosis. Myxomatosis being the sort of virus that was released. The disease that the virus causes when you release it into rabbit populations. It's rabbit populations. Yeah, Yeah, right. It's a biocontrol. Yeah, just to cull, like, the overpopulation of Mm -hmm. rabbits. But during World War II, typhus, scrub typhus, was a really, really big thing um, that was killing soldiers. And she had had first-hand experience of war, like the first war. And so she was like, okay, I'm really, really devoted to to dealing with this. And so a lot of people thought at the time that a vaccine was the solution to typhus. Yeah. So she was devoted to finding a vaccine and she essentially injected a mouse or lots of mice um, with the disease. But unfortunately, she accidentally pricked herself in doing so. Oh, yeah. And she passed away four weeks later. But like she was so dedicated. She was telling everyone, like, take my blood, take my blood at different time points. Wow. (laughs) Like study me. Um. So, yeah, I, I think that's, you know, quite, quite incredible. And it wasn't that long later when people realized, oh, this is a bacteria. You can treat that with antibiotics. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, oh, they just didn't know yeah, back then. Yeah, what could have, what could have been if she hadn't pricked herself um, mm. and got that disease at, at, at that time? Um, she did some really cool work in influenza, though. She monitored the 1939 influenza epidemic in Melbourne, and she realized that the strain, you can get the same strain, but the virus can slightly change, so it looks slightly mm. different in the immune system. So people thought that when different sort of similar viruses came along or similar strains of the influenza virus came along, they're, they're like literally coming in differently um, from different sources. But she realized that in the population in Melbourne, it was actually just that there was variation. Wow. And that's kind of what we're seeing now with the COVID-19 pandemic is what yeah. we know with lots of viruses now that, you know, you can have slight variations that just arise. Wow. So, yeah, that was that kind of lay the groundwork. Very prescient. Nancy Millis is someone who might be a little bit more well known, and what I what you might not know so much about. So she really headed biotechnology in Australia, particularly in Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but that idea of bringing biology together with engineering, together with like you know genetic engineering, yeah. and um, part of it was the fact that she looked at in Bristol, why and how certain bacteria cause cider to turn bad during the fermentation process. Um, And she discovered that bacteria, similar to yeast, can release chemicals that change the taste of cider. Ah. Um, 
And that kind of led her to a lifelong passion in anything that ferments. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she, she was, like, really pivotal in introducing genetic engineering to the very fledgling field of biotechnology in Australia. So I won't talk about her too long because there's lots on her. Um, but someone I also just wanted to, to just mention is Kat Gauss, who was at UNSW in Sydney. And uh, I, I wanted to mention her because I knew her personally and it was very much a shame for the scientific community when she passed away. Um, but she was incredible in terms of just pioneering new ways to look at individual molecules in cell membranes to work out what's going on when cells get activated. Because no one had ever like sort of looked at that detail before. We're like, oh, yeah, cells get activated. Cool. But she was like, how? Wow. Like, so she was looking at individual molecules. Yeah. How so she even? Found way, yeah, right. Um, she found ways to like label particular molecules within the cell membrane um, so that you could work out, you know, what's going on and where they are. Mm -hmm. and, and that's sort of the unique thing that she brought to it. Mm. People had been able to like sort of look at molecules before, but not where they were in space too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she saw some cool things about how, oh, you know, these particular receptors are engaged and cool, that means activation. But actually the signal is spread. It's kind of like a ripple effect yeah. away from it. And there's lots more going on than we thought. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. What an excellent list of wonderful scientists who've contributed so much to the field. And it's definitely not an exhaustive list either. There are lots of great people out there. I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, mostly on the theoretical side. What's so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So, have you ever wondered what Earth was like in the early days? What about when Earth was, you know, more than three and a half billion years ago? What was it like and how did it go about changing into the beautiful green and blue globe we all know and love? Geologist Dr. Ashley Hood is our guest today and can help us answer some of these questions with her research. She's lecturer in the School of Geography, Earth, Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne, as well as being an all-round rock star, pun intended. Ashley, welcome to Lost in Science. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs> so, Ashley, your research, it tells a story of life on Earth. It's Being a geologist, it's a huge timescale that you're looking at. Can you tell us a bit about the types of questions that you ask in your research across this huge timescale? So, that's right. Geology has really long timescales, perhaps beaten only by physics. But I, <laughs> Not that it's a competition, however. <laughs> no. Not that it's competition. Um, but yeah, that's right. I look mainly at the early Earth, so, and I class that anywhere between about 4 billion and about a, a billion or half a billion years ago, so 
really long timescales. And it's really amazing that over this, say, four, four and a half billion years that we've had of the Earth, that we've managed to support life on Earth for all of this time. And so there's these huge fundamental questions to science, and these are things like, what is the origin of life on Earth? Uh, how has life survived for four billion years or three oh. and a half billion years? Um, and through particularly, how has it survived through intervals of climate change and environmental change um, so that our Earth has become from this strange place that it used to be, a sort of a hostile place to life in many ways? How has that life survived through these various changes in the planet to our beautiful Earth that we have today that's that's thriving and green and beautiful oceans. So these questions that I look at are really, I think, fundamental questions in science about how we got here, basically. Not small questions. Not small, that's right. What is the origin of life and what is our purpose? (laughs) I've left the purpose one aside. And in your questions and your research, you look a lot at fossilised coral reefs. Um, around the world. Why is it important to look at these coral reefs and what do they tell us about um, life on Earth? That's right. So reefs like the Great Barrier Reef, for example, today are hotspots of biodiversity on our modern Earth. And as we go back through time, we can also look at ancient reefs to tell us a little bit about what's going on in ancient oceans. Uh, And so most of the evolution of life is actually in the oceans. Uh, and particularly in the shallow parts of the ocean. So reefs, as we, if we can track reefs through time and how they change and how the organisms that make up the reef change, we can track something about um, not only just evolution, but actually how that marine environment has changed as well. Uh, and so I look at um, mainly reefs from an area, era called the Neoproterozoic. That's around about, say, 800 or 600 million years ago, um, these reefs. And these are made of some unusual creatures that are sort of take the place of corals, like in modern-day reefs, but they, mm. they're slightly different. We don't really know what they are. They're kind of unusual, perhaps microbial things or some maybe a very primitive uh, animal. We're not really sure. Um, but these reefs, again, are these hotspots of biodiversity in these really unusual oceans that characterise this time. So they're not oceans that we would typically think of as the oceans that, you know, we enjoy swimming in. That's right, yeah. So they're probably um, not the greatest place for humans to hang out. So <laughs> most, of, most of Earth's history actually has been, this early part in particular, has been really devoid of oxygen in the oceans and the atmosphere. And so way back, you know, three billion years ago, it's, you know, we think that the oceans were probably green with dissolved iron and the sky might have been orange. The atmosphere might have been made of methane, you know, and a lot of carbon dioxide. And gradually um, that ocean has changed and atmospheres have changed. And um, But probably when these reefs were around about 650 or so million years ago, probably the oceans were still very much devoid of oxygen. Whether they were clear or murky, we don't really know, but, but probably not the greatest place to swim. Not Certainly not as nice as the Great Barrier Reef today. This life, as we know it, um, was surviving in a totally oxygenless environment. That's right, exactly, yeah. And so one of the things I look at through Earth's history is I track this oxygen through time because it's intimately connected to the evolution of life. So, for example, things like animals that require oxygen to live and breathe, they can't have evolved until there was enough oxygen in the atmosphere and oceans for them to live. And so this period of time that I look at the Neoproterozoic, where around about, say, 650, where these reefs are, is when we think some of the earliest animals might have evolved, although we don't really see them in the fossil record until a little bit later, um, until around about 550 or so in the Cambrian explosion. 
But this is around about the time that we think oxygen picked up and enabled animals to evolve. But it's it's really uncertain as to this that that transition in life, this complexity, kind of explosion of complexity in life. It's really uncertain what the environmental conditions were. And so part of my work tries to unravel that in sort of more detail than has been previously explored. Um, this is fascinating. I mean, how do you go about getting an understanding of what the atmospheric conditions or the oxygen concentration was like, you know, these millions and millions of years ago? What are you looking for in the rocks and these fossilised coral reefs? That's a good question. So um, so I guess we can look back at, at more recent times in Earth's history from things like the ice cores, but they don't extend back, you know, very far at all. They, and when we get to about this time period, like 600 million years ago, um, we really the, we can really only look at the rocks to understand what was happening during this time. So these reefs that I'm talking about are not no longer in the water. We don't go diving or anything. These are these have been scraped by tectonic processes like the Himalayas. They've been scraped up and formed into mountain ranges, which have then eroded away. And so I go to places like the Flinders Ranges in Central Australia, where you walk across the hills, and it's like walking across a cross section of a beach you know, out into the ocean. So you oh, can just wow. the hills and see all these ancient ancient beaches, ancient, you know, where the reef framework is, where the deep water is. Yeah, which is really great. And you can pick up some of the rocks you pick up, have little crystals preserved in, in them. And these crystals are like, in a sense, like salt. They precipitate out of seawater. And these form in different parts of the reef. And we can analyse these crystals with a laser uh, and determine the chemistry. And that can tell us about the chemistry of the water. And how much oxygen might have been there. Wow. So these crystals are sort of give some sort of proxy understanding of what was in the water at the time. Yeah, that's exactly right. Proxy. Yeah. And so we call them marine cements. And these ones are made of dolomite, which is like a kind of like limestone, but it's got magnesium in it. And, and yeah, we, we, it's pretty, it's pretty cool science. We put them in a laser, which I always think is very exciting. <laughs> <Cool. laughs> I never, and, I, I never thought of geologists using lasers. So, you know, I think yeah. you just blown a few minds around Australia now. <laughs> so, Ashley, what are some of the sort of biggest results and findings from the research that you've been doing with the coral reefs? So these ancient reefs around the Neoproterozoic around 600 million years ago had not been recognised before. And we originally thought that reefs very suddenly evolved with the evolution of animals. And so finding these reefs, and I should say I work obviously with a, with a large team of people, uh, including Malcolm Wallace at the University of Melbourne, and Finding these reefs has made um, a huge difference in our understanding of, of how reef systems work, basically. But not only that, when we can analyse these little crystals, it's told us that these oceans were essentially devoid of oxygen, even at really shallow depths. And so this sets the scene, I guess, for the evolution of animals occurring in much lower oxygen conditions than perhaps we previously thought, uh, if not in these exact reefs, then around about this time. Um, and so I think it's just... These results are really just showing that our history of our Earth is far more complex um, than we have thought originally, which always is the case in science. Now, one particularly interesting part of Earth's story is the ice ages that we've had, and we've had a couple of ice ages, haven't we? I've, I've always wondered how life survives through ice ages in extreme periods of cold. It's uh, So life um, manages to seem to find a way through all sorts of, um, catastrophic environmental change. But that's right, there has been several really big ice ages in Earth's history. And the biggest one is, is sometimes called Snowball Earth. And this happened around about the same time as these reefs. It's around about, there's two events, about 700 million and about 630 billion years ago. 
And these two events, um, some people think the Earth actually completely froze over, including all the oceans during this time. So a very, very severe ice age. Uh, and somehow, and this went for, you know, 50 million years, which is a very long time. That's like essentially from the dinosaurs until now. People have been questioning for ages how life survived through this. Uh, and there's different research going on, and, and part of our work um, suggests that perhaps some parts of the Ice Age weren't as cold as other parts, and maybe that's how you had areas of open ocean for things to things to survive. We had a student, um, Max Lechty, who worked on some rocks from within the Ice Age sediments, and he found that there perhaps were little oases of oxygen on the edges of these ice sheets that life, and again, animals, potential animals that might have existed might have survived through. But really, at this point in time, it's maybe lucky that, that life wasn't as complex as it is today um, because they need they had a much more simple life mm. and survive perhaps potentially better than, than today's creatures. Um, but we have had ice ages through other parts of Earth's history too when we've had much more complex animals. And while it does cause extinction events, life is very clever and always finds a way to adapt. So that is one positive thing about the history of the Earth. You've done an incredible amount of field work in your research. It's taken you all around the globe. Can you tell us about some of your favourite field locations? Yeah, what you've found there and what you actually do when you're out on a field trip as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, actually, because I feel like geologists are often misunderstood. People think we often dig like mine for rocks, but that's not what we do. We, In my area of research, we go out to these often remote places Places where you don't have uh, pesky, you know, vegetation, forests and trees getting in the way of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> so really, really like deserts and mountains, basically. Yes, you like your life to be um, dead for millions and millions of years, eh? <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah, so I, I mainly go to three places. The most, um, most commonly we go to the central Australia, the Flinders Ranges, and that is an absolutely beautiful place um, to do fieldwork. It's got an amazing history, amazing cultural history, Everything about it is, is really unique and beautiful, and um, there's heaps of amazing animals there and heaps of beautiful rocks. So that's one place. The other places we go to are Namibia in Africa, and that is also amazing. We've had many experiences camping in a river valley and having elephants surround us at night time or hear these stories about people being chased by lions and makes for exciting fieldwork. Very exciting. <laughs> and then most recently, just before the pandemic, we went to northwest Canada to the um, to the Yukon and up into the mountains there, and we got dropped in by helicopter, which was very cool. And then we had to be also rescued by a helicopter to get a bear, <laughs> a grizzly bear and her cub right next to our camp trying to get food. So <laughs> that was very exciting in its own right. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so definitely very remote places, Absolutely beautiful scenery. And in each of these places, we look for these ancient reefs or ancient sort of shallow sea um, locations where the rocks preserve this history of seawater through time. So it's like a reef, reef hunting, essentially. Right. So you're collecting the rocks while you're out there. You're hunting, collecting the rocks. Then you take them back into the lab and blow them up with lasers. Blow them up with lasers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, I think I want to become a geologist. Perfect. <laughs> Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your incredible research, for giving us an insight into the history and the story of our Earth. I do feel like I know her a little bit better now. So thank you again. Thank you. And 
And that's all we have time for on another episode of Lost in Science, this special International Women's Day episode. Thank you for joining us and a big thank you to Dr. Ashley Hood for being our guest today and a shout out to Kat, my co-presenter as well. Lost in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kula Nation and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you would like to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can find us at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter where we are Lost in Science 1 or on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week when Kat, Claire, Chris and Stu will get lost in science. Did you know that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore WIT. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. The US and the UK under AUKUS are pushing Australia into another imperialist war. At the same time, whistleblowers who expose war crimes are jailed. Come to the rally and march for peace, truth, not war. 18th of March, beginning at 1pm State Library, marching to Treasury Gardens. Help build a people's movement for peace. No AUKUS Roundtable is a 3CR supporter. CCR is Radical Radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're Radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're Radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're Radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.